Good evening and thank you all for joining us for this evening's very special event. Um, my name is Murray-Louise Ayres and it's my privilege to be the Director-General of the National Library of Australia. And whether you are here with us in the theatre or joining us online, a welcome to the National Library. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples on whose traditional lands we meet tonight and on whose land um, the library does its work. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and I'd also like to extend my respects to the traditional owners of the many lands from which our online audience will be joining us today. Um, we see consistently when we are streaming our events out to Australia that from every corner of this country, people are hungry to learn about our culture. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all here to the library this evening to celebrate the publication of Olive Cotton, A Life in Photography by a dear friend of the library, Helen Ennis. Helen is Emeritus Professor, Centre for Art History and Art Theory, ANU School of Art and Design. You may be familiar with her work without even knowing it. Helen is one of Australia's leading photography curators and since 2000, Helen has curated eight major exhibitions for national cultural institutions, including the National Portrait Gallery of Australia, the National Gallery of Australia, and of course, the National Library of Australia. Among other remarkable exhibitions, Helen curated the exhibition Olive Cotton for the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which toured to the National Library in 2000, celebrating our significant Olive Cotton collection. So it is very fortuitous uh, that Helen returns to us to speak about her new book. This is not the first time that Helen has written about Olive Cotton. In 1995, the National Library published Olive Cotton Photographer with an introduction by Helen. And I'd like to think that this early work on Cotton's extraordinary collections provided inspirations for the biography we are celebrating tonight. Joining Helen in conversation this evening is local journalist Alex Sloan, who is no stranger to the library stage. Alex has been a journalist for 30 years, dedicating 22 of those years to ABC Radio Canberra, sharing the stories of Canberrans. Please welcome Professor Helen Ennis and Alex Sloan. Thank you very much, Marie-Louise, and uh, it's wonderful to see you here tonight. Thank you for coming along. Before we begin the conversation, I just want to take this opportunity to say uh, some um, very important thank yous. First, I too would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians, custodians of the land we're meeting on, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples. I wish to acknowledge and respect their continuing culture and the contribution they make to the life of this city and the region. I'd also like to acknowledge and welcome other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be attending this event tonight. Members of Olive Cotton's family are here with us, including Olive's own children, her daughter Sally and her son Peter. I want to welcome them especially and other members uh, of the Cotton and McEnany families. I couldn't have written this book without the assistance of Sally, who provided me with invaluable source material and her own wonderful reminiscences. She was unwavering in her support of the project. 
This book took a long time to write, as those who know me know all too well, and there are many other people in the audience who helped along the way, too many to mention here. I'm indebted to former and present colleagues at the ANU Centre for Art History and Art Theory, and I also want to pay tribute to my own fabulous family, some of whom have travelled a very long way to be here tonight. My writing was supported by funding from the Australia Council and the Research School of Humanities and the Arts at ANU, a Peter Blasey Fellowship and the ABR George Hicks Fellowship. The resources here at the National Library of Australia and at the National Gallery of Australia have been fundamental to my research, reinforcing my belief that Canberra is an unrivalled place to carry out research into the arts and culture uh, of our country and of, obviously of other places as well. The publisher, Catherine Milne, has been amazing in her encouragement over many years. She would send me very persuasive uh, but uh, really lovely emails just to urge me to keep going despite um, all the difficulties that you have with long projects such as this. She was absolutely committed to producing uh, this, what I think is a very handsome book. Scott Forbes and Lara Wallace and the team at HarperCollins have been a great pleasure to work with and I'm full of admiration for their professionalism. Thank you to Catherine Favell here at the library for her long-standing interest in my research and especially um, to the National Library for holding tonight's event. I am so thrilled that Alex Sloan has agreed to this conversation and I can't wait to hear her questions. So would you join me please in welcoming Alex as we take this stage. I'm the one who's feeling um, really lucky to be talking to Helen Ennis. We catch up a lot at the Ainsley shops, but... Um, <laughs> um, this biography of Olive Cotton, typically I always try to finish the book that I'm in conversation about on the same day, and so this morning I finished Helen's book and I sat staring out the window for a very long time. I just sat there and actually it is dappled and I thought Olive would frame this in the most beautiful way. But my thoughts went to both women, to, to Olive, the woman and the artist, and to Helen, the woman and the artist. Helen Ennis has poured her incredible talents as a writer and a curator into Olive Cotton's story. And like Olive's photographs, it's been done with time, care, love and a kind of selflessness. I just want to start with the final paragraph, actually, from Helen's book. Helen has chosen to write about Olive's photograph, which is a landscape photograph taken in the New England area, That's I think, right. called Light and Shade. And I'll just quote her. This photograph is the stunning affirmation of Olive's conception of photography as drawing with light, created at the height of her powers. The command of light and the daring composition are certainly impressive, but ultimately what endures is something less obvious, the impersonal quality of the photograph. By this I mean that the image is detached and the ego of the photographer and by implication the viewer are irrelevant. The world Olive depicts is humanless and huge, far greater than any individual could be. Thus the significance of light and shade is not confined to Olive's view about photography. It can also be seen as an avowal of her anti-materialism her abiding love of nature and her gentle advocacy for a rapt engagement with the natural world, 
All of these sustained her to the end in her photography and her life. <laughs> that's, that, that's Helen Ennis for you. Helen, congratulations on a work of immense beauty. Thank you. Uh, it's like Olive taking her photographs, you waited. You waited for the right time, for the right clouds to come over in the right formation. Olive died in 2003, her husband Ross in 2011. Um, you write that timing was everything, and I'll quote you, it did not seem appropriate or indeed even possible to write her into being while Ross was alive, while he was alive. Tell me about that. Okay, so uh, what always drew me, of course, to this project was Olive's art photography. It's fabulous. And there was always the energy there. And I, with any project I've done, I always feel you go to where the energy is. Sometimes it's unresolved, sometimes it's restless, sometimes it's actually resolved, but in a, in a way that still gives off a lot. So with Olive, there was always something there that um, drew me very much to her photography, uh, that drew me yeah, to her also as a person. So I guess what happens there, Alex, is I had to think about what it is to write a biography. Mm. I knew I wanted to write a biography, but I do see a biography as a narrative. It is a story, and so I had to conceive of Olive also as a character. And I've, I've used a lot of literary devices to try and bring her story to life. And I felt that she could be neither uh, this character or this construction uh, if she were present, I would be deferring to her in all her reality and all her presence. Mm. And so it wasn't possible to really think about it until she wasn't there in the world along with me because then she would still have been herself, not her character yeah. in my story. And also with reference to Ross as well? Yes. yes. Because they had such a long marriage and such uh, a long life together... And, uh, I mean, writing biography is an invasive project, as you'll all know, and things that you are told that um, inform the story, they're not always positive. And so it was important for me, too, that I not be trampling around inside their private lives while they were there. They were always the most gracious and generous of hosts, but I was a guest and a friend, mm. whereas then I became a biographer. After their deaths, I became something else. And that's when I began to write them, I guess, into being. You wrote in me, Anjan, I was shocked by the strength and immediacy of the impact on my biographical project. It was electrifying. All of a sudden, it was like a key going into the, into yes. the lock. Yes, that's exactly right, because then I felt uh, liberated. But having said that, it's not a fictional biography at all, and it's not a speculative biography. There's, for me, it was always crucial to be true to what I saw as the evidence, different kinds of evidence. So Olive is the character because this is her life narrative, but it's my story of her life. Mm. She might have told another different one if she were writing an autobiography. Mm. Another biographer might have a different kind of yeah. approach. Because you, you quote Janet Frame um, and she says, writing of the dead is different for the dead have surrendered their story. Yes, and I believe that absolutely, yeah. And so in that bush circled cemetery, um, when Ross is laid to rest, away, <laughs> you yes. knew this is a huge project. Mm. You actually tell us, you make reference to a room of one's own and mm. the sort of space and the privacy that mm. Olive... So to start writing this, you have a room of your own, Helen, 
and I you do. Ha- and you had it repainted. I do. Tell it, us that story. I gave myself rotator cuff injury in the process because <laughs> I clutched the roller too hard. My room was uh, an egg yolk yellow, which I loved, but I knew I couldn't write about olive cotton while the room was that colour. So I had to work out from the paint charts what seemed appropriate, and it was a blue. Some of you in the audience, I can see, are wearing it, but just a very light blue, a soft blue, because I needed to be extremely quiet in writing this book. I could never have any real noise around me. But a friend of mine, she said that blue is actually, that blue is the colour of consciousness. I didn't know that at the time. And so it was a very perfect room, in fact, to be writing about Olive. Yeah. So to, to Olive herself, do you remember the first time you saw a photograph by Olive Cotton? I don't remember the first one exactly, but I remember the feelings that I got immediately when I um, first began looking at her photographs. It's something about um, their resolution. They're very, very resolved works, but as I said, they have this kind of energy. So for me, of course, it was about beauty, it was about gentleness, about sensuousness, those kind of qualities. But also, because I'm an historian of photography, they had something to say as well, an alternative view to modernist photography in Australia, less heroic, less dramatic. So I remember the feelings that, that came from that. And I remember, too, very early on reading Max Dupain talking about the effect of seeing Olive Cotton's first solo show in 1985. And I'm just paraphrasing, but he said it was like walking through the bush and then coming across a, a calm, tranquil lake. He spoke about the therapeutic calm of her photography. And I've always felt a kinship with that statement, too, that 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 um, there's something there that draws me, that the energy from that. It was a very beautiful thing that Max wrote, wasn't mm. it? That was because mm. when I've been, they said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm 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 reading this book, this beautiful biography of Olive Cotton." And the easy way to explain to people was, of course, the relationship with Max to pain. Mm. What What do you think about that? I mean, is that um, do you hope this book might change that? I do. I hope mm. that. There's new information about their marriage, uh, so things that have never been published before. Uh, so I was able to have access to documents that other people hadn't looked at. I was able to gather recollections of, from people who knew them because this is such a long-standing project. So even someone saying, oh, yes, I had been to the studio in the 1940s, someone who was still alive then and who could say to me, I saw Max treat Olive like a piece of the furniture. So I was able to get, you know, these first-hand recollections still when the archive, if you like, was still alive and restless. So that kind of information is there. But there is a very extended discussion, too, about how active they were as photographers, as artists working together. They, they didn't... Uh, imitate each other's styles. It was always assumed that Dupain was the dominant one and she was the, uh, the lesser one, if you like, as we so often see in those professional relationships. But I'm convinced it was not like that. She certainly uh, was not the photographer in the business. She was the assistant, but uh, enormously proud of everything they achieved together. And Olive, right from the start, she had her own style and her own particular concerns. And you can see them as early as, uh, well, I think in interior, my room is a photograph from 1933. It's there then. 
She's 22 years old. It's a photograph Max Dupain never would have taken. And you would find photographs from him that, uh, from an early period, you know she couldn't have taken either. So really fertile, really active, really interesting, the way they work together. But I think we have to give them full credit as autonomous, independent beings who accomplished a lot independently. And she made it quite clear later on that she said that she basically would brook no interference uh, with Shasta Daisy's, one of her best-known photographs, it's on the back of the book, she said, oh, Max, you know, he wondered what on earth I was doing climbing up the store working in the studio, but she said, basically, I, I knew it would turn out all right, and sure enough, it did. It gets hung in London in a salon of photography, the pinnacle of achievement for art photographers. So, yep, I think they work mm. really closely together. I think they loved each other. Uh, incredibly, uh, from teens on. Because they were kind of children, they grew up together, they didn't did. they? Yeah. They met right before they started high school. So she was going to go to high school at MLC in Sydney and he was going to go to Sydney Grammar. So they meet as children, but right on that cusp, you know, of adulthood, and they fall in, in love. I mean, they, at first of all, are just uh, connected by photography. They go to each other's places, they process negatives together. They're in the dark of the makeshift darkroom at his place and at her place. And then they become uh, incredibly close. And I think there's absolutely no doubt they loved each other. But then as a marriage, as she said, you know, you, sometimes marriage doesn't work. And in their case, it was very brief. She decided quite quickly that it did not suit her. And, and what her, her father was a geology professor mm. and had been on an expedition with Shackleton. Yes. And, and, and I wonder about the influence of her father yeah. as well with her, her look to big nature and the yes. bigness of the world. I think it's crucial. And I th her father was um, Leo Cotton. He was professor of geology at Sydney Uni. And all reports are that he was just the loveliest man, a very gentle mm. man, enormously talented. Olive grew up in a family of privilege, surrounded by luminaries. I mean, their achievements really are quite phenomenal. But yes, it was through her father, actually, that she was uh, really encouraged in photography because he had learned uh, photographic techniques himself to take photographs of Antarctica on that trip, and they're in the Powerhouse Museum. I, I wondered with my crass kind of explanation of this book, and I thought, I'll just stick on my crassness here. Um, who do you think is the better photographer? Oliver Max. Mm. I'm just going to go there, yeah. Helen. <laughs> yeah. I'm a journalist, so, you know. <laughs> so I suppose um, because I'm a very even-handed person. Yes, you are. <laughs> and you're a professor. <laughs> That's right. I think they have very different contributions yeah. to make. And I think that Max Dupain's photography is enormously important mm. and fabulous. But I think that he often made too many photographs in the sense that he had all these um, commercial demands on him. So he did, uh, you know, more than, more than 200,000. That's a lot of negatives. So Olive's output was really different, much more mm. intense and concentrated. But I think that if I were to be told, could you take 100 Max Dupains and 100 Olive Cottons, you could make two fantastic exhibitions. Sean Lakin at the National Gallery did a show of Max and Olive, and you see them together, and they both are very fine photographers. Mm. But I just think that Olive brings to our conversation something very different in this contemporary moment. Obviously, hers is a woman's story, and this book yes. is very much a yeah, woman's story. It is. And, yeah, that's crucial. It's very hard, coming from a second-wave feminist generation, to not 
give a feminist reading mm. over the top and you warn us against that. Mm. You say quite clearly, Olive did not consider herself a feminist. Mm. T- tell us more about that. Yes, that's right. So Olive was at pains to point out that she saw herself, first of all, as an artist, as a photographer, not as a woman photographer. She didn't want to be categorised that way. But she did advocate for women nonetheless. So in one of her few public profiles um, in the 30s, when she gives an interview to the Sydney Morning Herald, she does talk about how she hopes that women will be much more involved in the photography arena. So she is a champion that way, and also of photography by other women and her friends. And if you look, and you will see some of these portraits go through, of her photographs of women, she absolutely understands women. I think she does some of the finest portraiture mm. of women uh, in this whole period. Well, that, that, I was doing that comparison between Max and, and I'm going to stop doing that, but, but the Sunbaker and then the, the, the wind and the, yes, that portrait. Yes, the wind, the wind, yeah. That, I, that's all I want on my wall now. Yes. I think that is the most extraordinary yes. photograph and it is by a woman of a woman yes, in right. that moment of complete and yeah. utter rapture of nature. Yeah, but also she allows her women to have an internal life and to have a power. Their power is a physical power, but it's a, also an internal power. So uh, this is why her portraits of women, I think, are very complex. They're very sensuous, they're gorgeous to yeah. look at, but her women are complex beings. She is a complex being, and I've tried to make her as complex as possible because uh, there's no point rushing to judgment, and so, If you were to do a feminist analysis, you might say very quickly, why didn't you do this or that? You know, you can... Why did you put up with this? Yeah, Yeah. exactly, but... but Different questions at a different time. Yeah, and it was a very complex thing. But she was committed all the time to... She believed in the value of an inner life, an imaginative life. And this doesn't just matter if you're a photographer, this is whether you're a a painter or a writer or a musician, all of us who want to have a rich inner life will respond, I think, to what she is feeling there. I'm jumping a bit, but there's an incredible photograph that you've included in the book when she has her studio at Cowra and she's doing a lot of weddings Mm. and and there's a photograph of a schoolgirl. It's um, Co. Jenny Co. Jenny Co. That comes through here too. I showed it to my husband this morning. I went, take a look. That's a photograph of a schoolgirl, but it's something. There's something yeah, else to it. Yeah. There's an incredible power. To incredible that. power. And you'll see that there's a photo of. Um, She's Olive's a Wiradjuri girl. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. So re- really powerful. She's in her school uniform, but the way that she and Olive um, transact the photograph, you know, the session, it's incredibly mm. commanding. Mm. Uh, so the way that woman looks, that young woman looks into the camera, mm. and you feel it, don't you? Oh, you feel the, I just, the power of that. I took, took time to talk, and you will when you reread this incredible book. But to, to leap back, the decision to, to leave Max, mm. and she goes to a girls' school, yeah. actually, to Frencham, to, to be a teacher. I mean, that was an amazingly strong and defiant decision, yes. wasn't it? Yep. And so in the book, I've tried to argue that there are these moments where she makes these audacious decisions. One is uh, after finishing university, not to go and be a teacher, but to go into Max Dupain's studio. By then, they really are a romantic couple, but that's, she said, why wouldn't I do what I want to do? Photography is my passion, of course, that's where I will go. And then, yes, these various audacious decisions. But to leave Max at that time, 1941, 
in the war, the divorce rate in Australia is minuscule and she chooses to um, find a teaching position. It is in a very progressive girls' school. She's, again, got the company of women, women uh, who were incredibly politicised and aware mm. of, of what was happening in the world and of creating a utopian community. So amazingly supportive for her. And Max uh, was blindsided. Uh, first of all, she'd made that decision to find the position, obviously, without discussing with him. And then she was gone, and she said she, first she came back for a few weekends to collect some of her stuff, but only a few weekends. And then in their divorce proceedings, mm. you can see that he was completely shocked. He had looked so compressed for him, but she had made up her mind, obviously, mm. um, some time before. There's no doubt that Olive Cotton had a, an eye for physical and natural beauty, and this is the case when it came to the men in her life. Yes. I mean, they were beautiful men. Yes, incredibly handsome yeah. men. Yeah, and Olive's <laughs> um, granddaughter, Lucy uh, Lehman, she does write about that too, yes, about um, Olive's taste in men. Because yeah. yes, that, fo that photo of Ross in, in uniform... Looking directly at it's quite it's it's an erotic photo, it isn't is. it? And she says it was for his parents. So. <laughs> He's not looking at his parents in no. that photo. <laughs> I think that was the beginning of the romance, nineteen forty-two. Um, you come backwards and forwards. You you really tease out her reasons for leaving Max, and maybe we'll leave that to the readers too. Sure. Um, there's an incredibly heartfelt story, but I want, I, actually, I'll just leave that for you to to read. I guess the point here is that um, I use evidence to reveal things, um, but slowly, so uh, that the, these things happen across a yeah. whole lot of chapters. And, and then late in life, Olive and Max get to think about their lives, you know, in that life review phase, and so a little more comes out then. Mm. Yeah, but they then speak for themselves in a way. The way Olive loved music, mm. and there's something, there's something very musical in the flow of the way you have written. Tell, tell me about that. Is that on purpose, or did that reveal itself to you? Look, I always need a metaphor, a conceptual metaphor, and I have got a few going in this. One was that I was needing... Um, a lump of, of dough, and mind you, I don't make bread. I'm terrified by the whole yeast process. I've got no um, aff affinity, really, or ability. But it was as if the dough had bubbles in it, and I had to, through the process of kneading, mm. try and eliminate the bubbles, which were the big ruptures, but still allow enough breaks and things in, in between. So that, for me, was a metaphor of get rid of the big distress things, and then so drop it down a bit, but still have uh, these these moments which, which shift and mm. register. Mm. So so it's musical in that sense because you can be going along and then it's like, oh wow, we've we've gone into another passage. But I also felt like I was dealing cards. You know, I'm dealing this one, and then I wait, <laughs> and then I deal this one, and then I wait, and then another one comes. Well, and, and speaking of cards, I mean the cards she chooses to when she marries Ross, they live in a tent. They do, that's right. It's, it's not, she doesn't choose comfort. No, she doesn't. And she stresses that um, her father, um, well, look, her parents, I mean, her whole circle 
is very unconventional in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And her grandfather, uh, there's a photo she took of her grandfather where she says that he's probably pointing to Russia on the globe as a little light bit because he was always interested in the five-year plan. You know, he's, he, he was a socialist. He was really fascinated by that. He called one of his children Karl Marx. Um, he was called Max Cotton. So, yeah, she came from a family that was very progressive, not just politically, but thinking about science and art coming together, but in very creative, uh, unanticipated ways, I think. And I think Sally, who's here tonight, but tells you the story, but particularly, you know, I come from one of those country communities and, you know, there is a, a sort of pressure to dress and look in a certain way mm. um, at that, at that, um, in that era, mm. which Olive... No, she didn't want to borrow. Do. That's yeah. right. Sally says how she didn't have her hair permed like the other farmers' yeah. wives and so on. She was prepared to be different, I think, to be audacious mm. uh, for, through many moments in her life. Yeah. Not all, but many, yeah. You, you say Olive's public voice is hard to find with so little on the public record, but what, when it comes to her private existence, it's a different matter. Mm. Tell me about that, so to find that, because there yeah. weren't many interviews and she didn't like no. publicity. No, she was very shy, um, retiring, reserved person, and in the second marriage Ross was the talker, and I think in the first marriage probably Max was the talker, um, even though she was, people said how fun-loving and so on she was. So uh, uh, there wasn't a lot... Um, in terms of what biographers want, like diaries and, and letters and, and that you would be able to pore over. Uh, for those people who have read uh, biographies on famous figures like uh, on Manning Clark, where apparently, you know, there's just boxes after boxes where he's gone through and annotated. <laughs> and that so was called an eye to eternity because he, yeah. he had a photograph taken of himself near a tombstone. I mean, he, he yeah. knew that this was going to be poured over. Yes. Oliver's the opposite. That's right. She's much more fatalistic. She has a very different view of, of time and of um, what it is we do in the world. So she wasn't ego-driven that way at no. all. Um, some might say she was too self-effacing, too modest, uh, that, that that was an issue. What was most important to her? Oh, look, I think if you talk personally, it would be family. Absolutely no doubt. Children, grandchildren and, and all that. But I think, yes, for me it's this idea of the natural world, um, you know, having uh, a sense of its importance that goes way beyond you, mm. that you already quoted, but of beauty in that too, and mm. of, of having an uh, imaginative life. Um, her sister-in-law said that Olive had a secret life. It was in her head. So we, you know, we uh, are so oriented to the external world. We give so little time to an internal life, and I think that's actually... I've, I've said before that for me, biography, if it's going to have any relevance, is because the subjects of biography speak to us now. We're not just interested in them because of the past. So you have to think, what are Olive's uh, invitations to us in our moment? And I think one of them is, is about that, you know, what really counts and, and what, what it means to have time on your own, you know, solitude. Mm. Um, sure, you can be part of a social world in that too, but to to do, do the tough stuff in your dark room, yeah. no one else there, and making your own prints. There are there's some heartbreaking, well, there's many heartbreaking moments in the book, but the fact when you say, look, for 18 years, um, really she didn't take many photographs mm. at all. It was about child rearing and family. Mm. And it's almost, I don't know, it's a really, she, she enters in the 
agricultural show yes. and she doesn't realise that that's really out of vogue now. Yes. T- tell us that, that story and yeah. that great gap in her career. Yes, that's right. So when Olive moves to the country, and as Alex has pointed out, she's living in impoverished um, circumstances with her, her second husband, Ross. They have the children. It's a few years before they're able to move into their own home. Still really basic. No electricity, no, not the access to water that you need if you're going to have your own dark room and so on. So she's taking photographs, but she isn't able to print them herself. And she saw the printing as part of her creative practice. It was crucial. So she couldn't do that. She couldn't advance in that mm. sense. But she'd never not stopped taking photographs, or I don't think she ever stopped probably thinking about taking photographs, but she wasn't looking at the work of others either, going to exhibitions or, you know, it was impossible in her circumstances. So the decision to um, enter into the agricultural show, the Royal Agricultural Show in Sydney, uh, would have been crushing because she was rejected. And so if you think, here was our most important woman photographer or um, in the 30s and 40s, does such fabulous work, and then just a few decades later, you know, doesn't even make the cut. So it's not until the 80s, really, that uh, she begins to uh, take her place in exhibitions. What happens then? What happens then? It's largely through the retrieval work of feminist um, historians in Melbourne, uh, Jenny Mather and Barbara Hall and Christine Gillespie, and they go there and they interview Olive and they begin that whole process of the pilgrimage, which many people like me also made, uh, to see her and to see her work. And Olive was so generous, she would show you things. She actually gave a lot of photographs away to her visitors in that period. Mm. Yeah. When did you first meet her? I met her first in the mid-1980s. And, yeah, I kept visiting during um, those next decades mm. with my family. And do you, do you remember your first reaction to yeah. meeting her? And yes. The questions you started to ask yes, about her? Yes, I did. She's tiny. She was tiny. So <laughs> that's one thing that happens, I suppose. You just have that physical disjunction. Uh, but incredibly uh, modest. I've used that word modest um, before, but she did not like to talk about herself particularly or even really about her photography. But Sally did a great series of... Uh, um, go, really archival work, looking at photographs and recording what Olive was saying about them. So I was very dependent on that, mm. on that even more than talking to Olive directly mm. myself, because she did not say a lot. Because it, it, and there's a great part in the book when I think it's Sally and a friend pack up her studio yes. in Cowra. Yeah. That's quite revealing as well, isn't it? It is, that's right. What what was in that studio and... Yeah, and if you do look at the photographs, you'll see even on the wall in the 60s, she's got teacup ballet and some of the photographs from the Sydney years because there's been that big gap and she joins it by calling herself Olive Cotton when she opens the studio. But she also joins it by putting then the Sydney photographs in there to establish that continuum. And by that point... She's too frail when she's packing up the studio. She's, Oliver's by then too frail to do her own printing and so on. But she still wanted to photograph. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Yes, Sally. Um, yeah, great she, The great quote, I think, she says, photography is drawing with light, and that is my greatest interest. Mm. Tell, tell me your thoughts yeah, about so that. Yeah, so she says that she's not making photographs, in fact, for other people. She's trying to satisfy herself. And what um, she sees in light, I mean, this is where I I would argue 
Um, there's something fundamental about her contribution. She's got all those values that come from scientific observation and then all that aesthetic and refined sensibility, her sort of exquisite sensitivity. Somehow she brings the art and science together. So her work is very rational. It's not irrational or illogical. It's actually really ordered. But at the same time, uh, yes, it has you know, these great invitations to open-endedness and beauty and, and uh, other things that make them so appealing, make the art photographs so appealing. Now, I'll just put you all on notice and we can get a microphone to you. I'm going to um, open it up to questions very soon. So I'd love the, um, you to you know, put your hand up and just keep it up and we'll get the microphone to you. Um, but I'll just keep because just while I've got Helen to myself for a moment. Um, what, so where, how important is Olive Cotton um, in the history of Australian photography? Where do, where do you put her? I put her right up the top. I do, for the period of uh, modernist photography uh, in the 30s and 40s, I put her right up there in the, in the top group. Why? Yeah, uh, because um, even if we just talk about that, that unification of the scientific and the aesthetic, but to this gentler vocabulary that I've spoken about too. Shasta Daisies, uh, can I, if I just use that as an example, that's the one that's on the back of the cover, that, that she thinks that all things are of equivalent value. I mean, she really is an egalitarian, democratic photographer. She doesn't single out a particular flower when she does her flower studies. She looks at a group and every photograph has this kind of, um, every uh, flower in the, those studies have an equivalence. She does that when she photographs the Budapest String Quartet too. There's four blokes in there, but they, they all have the, the same kind of um, reality, if you like. So I think that's really interesting when modernist work so often uh, makes something uh, hierarchical, and she doesn't do that. She's much more interested in egalitarianism and, and democracy, and I think that's radical, I think that's great. But uh, it's her subject matter too, the fact that she does draw these things from the natural world, it is those photographs of women, and uh, it is this idea of the viewer, like she's never a table thumper, she's never didactic, she wants you to have a space in which you will operate and connect with those photographs. So when she says in that, uh, okay, I'm making them for myself, she actually, uh, that is, is, it sounds like it might be an egotistical statement, it's not. It just means she's got to be satisfied to her particular standards, but she leaves an abundance of room for you. And I've tried to do that too with the biography. Well, that's... That that I've tried to match, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. If we talk about music or rhythm, that somehow there's a space for you to make your own decisions and and, and I think your you've, own you've just done that beautifully. And just I just saw the photo of Jenny Coe just come up there. You sh Helen in the book stops us and just will single out one of Olive's photographs, and then does this sort of masterclass <laughs> in terms of explaining the photograph to us. It's just it's so beautifully done. Um, and this is, of course, your background as a curator yeah. and as an academic. Um, yeah. So that you did that on again as a sort of yeah. the rhythm of the music, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And because those are your moments of contemplation, mm. it's me saying to you, look, all we have now is this photograph yeah. and you, and we're a part of a three-way thing. I'm just telling you a story about this particular thing. Yeah. So those chapters are just a page or two, so they're meant to slow down the whole mm. thing again. Yeah. It's hard not to get cross with Ross and Max. Yeah, I agree. 
No, I'm with you there, Alex. There's an account, and familiar with these kind of characters, you know, might have been my own father, but the account of Ross when there is a film being made about Olive, and the the producers go, okay, well, because he's... She's been taken up by the film. The producer says, "We'll get food brought in for mm. Ross," and then mm. he complains about the food. Yes, so she a... still has to go and cook the. Yeah, it's sort of. Yeah, I was told lots of anecdotes about all sorts of people, and and this is where the card thing I'm telling yeah. you. I don't play all my cards because some of the stories, yeah, they are distressing. They're tough. Yeah, they are. And I guess it was a different generation than a. Yeah. But she find, Olive finds her way through it. So I think that that's yeah. where, in the end, we don't have to feel sorry for her and make oh, a judgment sorry, on her but behalf. No, but I feel cross. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> because what she gives us... She's never a victim to me. No, no she's not. That's no, right. she's no. the most extraordinary. Yeah. And, and what yeah. Helen has done here is, is just so beautiful. So just get ready with the questions. I did love Bruce James, the quote. Yeah. That you, will I read it? Yes, by all means. Force um, for art critic Bruce Jones wrote this after seeing Olive's work. I called Cotton a force for change. What does that mean? Save that I'm struggling for a cliche that won't stunt her. I, sh- I think she's among a small group of artists who are ca- causing us not simply to know ourselves better as a people, but to like ourselves more. Not simply to admire the environment, but to reverence it. Not to look at Australia, but apprehend it. Mm. That's just such a great... It is. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, it's just just mm. beautiful. And I think mm. that's exactly the... I Thank you so much for... All I want is an olive cotton <laughs> photograph <laughs> now. But let me... Um, please put your hand up. Um, I'm sure you've got lots. There's so much in this book and I'm just picking out bits and pieces. But put your hand up and, and ask some questions of Helen. Um, don't be shy. I can keep talking. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful insight into Olive's life. I knew a bit about Max Dupain. My mother actually worked for him briefly in Sydney as a young woman, Um, but knew nothing of Olive until about the 1980s, so Mm. thank you. Um, It's a very plebeian question. Is there any celebration of Olive's work in Cowra? It's a great country town, but do they celebrate her at all there? No, um, in fact... Uh, when, so the book's been out just for three or four weeks and where we had the first launch was in Cowra um, for the Cowra people and Cowra community. They are enormously proud of her and uh, there are photographs in that, that gallery's collection. They are trying to raise money to buy more works by her. Uh, and yes, once she was... Uh, uh, she, a photograph by Olive appeared on the stamp. Um, Teacup Ballet was on the stamp in the late 80s. And then... It's like her fame really grew like wildfire in, in Cowra. And, yes, they're phenomenally proud. And they've, they hosted the show that went from the National uh, Gallery just recently, just last year. And they plan to have a talk in that next year too. So it's an ongoing commitment to her and her work. Mm. Now, any other questions? Just um, put up your hand and we'll get the microphone just over here. Thank you so much. It's just coming to you here. Thank you. 
Hi, Helen. Um, Hi. I'm just wondering, with the amount of the variety of work, you know, when you sort of see um, artists these days, they sort of concentrate on a certain genre or certain yeah. whatever. And, and she was quite prolific in quite a v wide variety of yeah. um, of imagery. So, can you comment on that? Yep. Now, that's a great question because it actually goes right to um, Olive's oeuvre, what we would call an oeuvre, you know, it's the body of work. And when you look in the 30s, she tries out all sorts of things. She's a young woman in her 20s, part of this really vibrant environment. So she's photographing a little bit in the city, but she's doing still lives in the studio. She's going out into the natural world with her camera. She's making portraits of her friends. So that's, in fact, where you see the most variety in her subject matter. And then later on, when she does come back to her art photography and th just immerses herself in it, it is more restricted. It's the natural world that is the bridge between the two phases. So the, uh, once the studio is open, the first um, really strong photograph she makes again, this is now in the 1960s, so as, all, as um, um, Alex pointed out, there's an 18-year gap, it's, it's flower studies just what she had been doing in the 30s. And so for her, it was as if there was no break. There she was again in the studio, um, taking in the, uh, the, the, what she said is for her, the Cherokee rose was the most perfect. She loved the flowers for their form. She talks about that. Um, yeah, so there were particular flowers. She, she's not running a campaign about Australian natives, indigenous plants, uh, or even about exotics. It's not the most expensive lilies and orchids. It is um, the things that are growing in her garden and round about quince blossom, chester daisies, wild plum, all these sorts of things. So, so yeah, more variety early and then later on much more um, settled and much greater focus on the natural world. Mm. Mm. Great question. Any other questions? Just, just put up your hand and we'll get the microphone to you. Yes, just here. Oh, hi, Helen. I was just wondering, the photographs of the houses that she lived in, yeah. the two houses in the countryside, they look pretty wrecked. Yeah. Do you think though that they were like that when she lived in those yeah. houses? Yeah. So uh, the key thing uh, I think there is that uh, they were incredibly simple, but of course much more ordered <laughs> yet when, when Olive did live there. But the, the second house, which is the house that we knew her in and visited her in is two construction workers' bar barracks that are uh, smushed together. So what's so interesting then is when they get that, that's a big improvement in their living conditions, but they never erase the signs e ever of the people who'd lived there before. So inside, that's why I use the example of her door. The Dymo tape label on her door is the name of the previous occupants because the workers had all the bedrooms. And so when you go into Olive's house, you can see the names of the workers who lived there before her. So certainly there were some aspects of the housing that um, did improve, but there were other things that I found really curious like that, that um, she accepted. She didn't, and Ross didn't feel the need to paint Because with her eye for detail, as you said, it all needed was a quick tug to take that diamond. Yeah. So... But she so must have looked at it every day. That's right, but she chose not to do things like that. And the yard, the yard always was in disarray, but, but it looked like um, disarray in the sense that it was so full of stuff. And I try to use the houses as 
another kind of documents because we've already mentioned that there's Olive didn't leave behind a lot of stuff to give me access to her inner life. But the houses, I mean, how often with a biographical subject can you see that every house she lived in, from Waruna, the beautiful house in Hornsby, to the barracks that were uh, at Spring Forest, that they're still there, so you can go to them. So there's all this profusion, but in the end, I realised that in there, there actually was very little of Olive, because there were 17 car wrecks, you'll see those, the Austin cars, but they belong to Ross, not to Olive. And so the area where there were all the stoves or the area where there's all the beekeeping paraphernalia and so on, that's not actually hers. So even though that's um, her home, she's, she's as absent there in, in a way. In fact, someone who wrote to me, people have just started reading the book and sending me an email, and one, one of them... Uh, a woman, she said to me, Olive is a, a mystery wrapped up in an enigma. <laughs> oh. <laughs> because, yeah, from those places, you still get so little. Yeah. Some other questions? We've just got a, bit, uh, a little bit more time. Yes, just down here. Sorry. Thanks. Thank you. Your, your book has been on my bedside table the last few weeks, so I've been enjoying it. I was Thank just going to ask about... Um, so Max came from, you know, his father's interest uh, in the, the human form and the, and the sort of physicality yep. and gymnasium and thing. And so it's sort of interesting... Uh, well, I just wondered if you can comment on her... I guess her way of seeing, you know, to, to what degree it was kind of... Um, you know, we can see that perhaps in that image of, of Max after surfing, that, yep. that sort of strong physicality. But then there's also a sense that she moves away from that. And I just wondered if you yeah, have a thought on that? Yes. Um, now, that's an interesting question because you could say, well, she moves away from portraiture uh, and that preoccupation then with the human subject. But in fact, because she has the commercial studio in Cowra, that really is all portraiture. So the portraiture is still there and the people do have that um, physicality, that, 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 that kind of presentness still in the world. But of course, those, the really sensuous stuff that comes from the 30s and 40s, that belongs to youth too. Yeah. That that's a phase when those people are in their 20s and 30s. They're all gorgeous, they, they're designers, they um, make their own clothes, they copy patterns out of Vogue, they help each other do this and that, you know, they go to the ballet ruse, they're all out there listening to, to, to music. So, so that informs, I think, the whole image of the body as a really vital, uh, lived-in body. And uh, a lot of people, of course, uh, the, their sexual relations, I tried to work out all that stuff. It was a really Puritan era, in fact. Um, all those scholars of uh, the history of sexuality in Australia, they do point that out. And yet people were not doing as the church and the state and their parents told them. Uh, there was, you know, a whole lot of stuff going on. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> how, how much in Oliver and Max's case and that I could never work out. And in the end, it's not my, my business to. But uh, so a lot of that sexuality is, is display, mm. I feel. Uh, that, that the Max after belong. surfing. Yeah, yeah, and some of the other photographs that you'll see um, of them. I mean, th because people... Like, to even photograph the nude was pretty brave because... Uh, I think there was a great quote from 
Damien Parra's biography. Damien Parra was a great friend of Olive's and Max's, and when he was killed, they were extremely distraught. But the uh, biographer points out that for a woman to go out to town without a hat and her, her gloves and her handbag was con considered whorish behaviour. So there were very strict uh, principles in operation. And then you see the cover of the book is Olive on a camp with her friends, including Max Dupayne, down at the south coast. And look how liberated and free they look. You know, that's a whole alternative. It's youth culture, but it, clearly it's a, a liberationist sort of aesthetic is, is in operation there too. Mm. Yeah. Great question. Any more questions? Yeah. Thank you very much. Did she ever experiment with colour photography? Uh, no, she didn't really. Now, I don't think she took a uh, position against it in the way Max Dupain did, because Dupain was adamant that colour photography could not be a creative pursuit. But I, I think that for, for all of the black and white, uh, it, it was she just loved being able to do that creative printing work in the darkroom. And so, no, that's where she stayed. A little bit of colour in the studio, and she did do some hand colouring of portraits for Cowra people. But no, black and white was really her thing. And that drawing with light, that relates to that because of the patterns and the tones. So the drawing is, is moving through those tones. She doesn't use a lot of contrast, like not a lot of black and white. She operates a lot in that middle range of tones. And that, again, gives you the softness and the sensuousness. Great. Another question over here. Um, there's a there's a kind of uh, uh, a weightlessness, a, a, an absence of gravity in in much of her work. You know, where where horizons will disappear. Yeah. There's uh, lots of skies. Um, to what extent is that um, an aesthetic choice? And to what extent do you think that that comes from uh, her personality? Yeah. Well, if only I knew. <laughs> Uh, but I think that weightlessness, absolutely. I think that that um, is definitely a concern of hers. And I was interested in uh, with her because when she comes back to photography, she is ageing, right? And her last photograph, the really great one, Moss on the Window Pane, 1995. So she's 84 when she takes that. I don't know about you, but I find that really comforting to think that you can just keep on smashing it, you know, till you're 84, because that's what we all want to do. So, so, so she has that, that she's, um, you know, still able to do that. And I was looking at what is the difference between the early and the late photographs. And I think in the late photographs, you do find there's more sky, like the horizon is lower down, and there's, there is this greater abundance of sky. Uh, but because she does do that earlier too, it's not like the late great break that you do see with some artists where what they do later is, um, is, is different to what they do earlier. And there's this wonderful work by Edward Said, some of you might know him, but he talks about why he loves Beethoven and people in particular who have this late great style, which is a going against. It's a, a refusal to be, accept serenity. And it's, uh, he, he likes that fact that nothing is, is resolved. But in Olive's case, in her last photographs, that weightlessness is very much about serenity and acceptance. So she doesn't show you a, a going against. She actually gives you something else, which is, um, I think, uh, you We talked that, about that with sunflowers, the, the sunflower heads. Yeah. Yes, as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. But nice question. Any other questions? Yes, in the middle here. Just got time for a couple more. Hi, Helen. Hello. <laughs> you talked about um, the absence of archival materials, which must have been very difficult then mm. to start your project. Mm. But I did notice that one of the photographs you had in here was of a trunk. Mm. Oh, it said it was a, a trunk of all her possessions from Sydney. Do you want to talk about what that revealed, if, if anything? Yeah. So that, that trunk is another metaphor. Remember I said I'm desperate for metaphors. Uh, and so that trunk uh, is what Olive used to bring her belongings from Sydney down to the country in 1946. So it's a sea trunk. You'd hope that it was going off to um, Sri Lanka and to you know, journeys uh, to all around the world and off to England or wherever people might have gone at that time. But it's just transporting her things from, from Sydney to Cowra. And then in that trunk, uh, I mean, I'm sure that over time, and the family will be able to tell you this, there was a lot of sorting that went on. But by the time I looked at it, there were the things from the Sydney years that had never been incorporated into uh, her, her current life. So it was the concert programs of the concert she'd attended in Sydney in the 30s. It was the books that she had got as school prizes. She was a stellar student. Not only were her family luminaries, but she was extremely talented. I mean, even at age seven in her school report, it said something like, she's got leadership potential. <laughs> you know, we're talking in 1918. So uh, there were things uh, in the trunk that were, were very revealing like that. But what it revealed to me most was that she wasn't worried about trying to sort everything out in the, ahead of her, her death. That's what I mean about this acceptance. And uh, she's not um, trying to, like other photographers that we would know, catalogue everything for posterity and try and establish a, a view which will become a received view. She would leave everything open there. So for someone like me, I could, in that case, with... Um, Fortunately, the support, especially from Sally, be able to look through the things that were left behind. What would she make of, of this? I don't know. I think she would probably be um, surprised to see herself like that. I think she would be um, thrilled that we are interested in her work because she was always so thrilled. She wouldn't expect uh, acclamation mm. or devotion. But, uh, yeah, I hope that she would like it. But, of course... In the end, this is my story of her mm. life. It's not her her story, and the I and, and, the, her. and the beautiful part in the book. And if you've got a question, please put up your hand. Oh, oh great! Um, where's the comments book for an yes. exhibition here in Canberra? Yes, it was here at the library. Actually, they kept a, a visitor's book. You know where you write things in, and I just did an analysis of the key words and and. Uh, how many times beautiful or, or uh, sensuous or lovely or gorgeous. Or, or, and uh, there was just such an outpouring from people uh, that way. Uh, and people were very genuinely moved, mm. like really touched by her photography. That's what I still hope that the book will do too, that there's that space there for you to make connections yourselves with some photographs and then to pursue them, to go online, certainly, but to go to the collections that are around the country here at the National Gallery and look at the works. And I think probably the last question here. Oh, okay. OK, thank you. It's been very interesting. Um, you mentioned just a shift of focus from Olive to you and you mentioned something about a number of devices that you used 
at the very beginning to write biography. Yeah. Um, so I just wondered if you could tell us, share your yeah. secrets. <laughs> yeah, so uh, for me, that's right, that this was a project triggered by my interest in Olive Colton's photographs, and that's the thing, it's about art and photography, but it's equally then about Olive's life. And then this other category is about biography. So I have used all the way through reflections on biography, and I do refer to other biographies, like by Hermione Lee, by Robert Desay and so on. Uh, I use Robert Desay's device of, of listening, because when he's... Uh, a biographer, he speaks about listening too to the environments in which his subjects had lived. And I never even thought of doing that. So, so I do choose those sorts of devices. And um, that book, Footstepping by Richard Holmes, where uh, he's going to follow a journey, where, to go everywhere where his subject um, had been. So I, I did that kind of stuff as well. Uh, and what's interesting for me now is I'm writing another biography where I can't do the footstepping, so I have to think about what else you know you put in the biographical space. So yeah, there's lots of reflections. Janet Malcolm about the biographer being the trespasser, like being A the burglar, burglar. Yeah. Mm, the burglar in the house going through all the drawers and you know lifting up the undies and looking under there and that sense of of transgression. And I was always aware of that too. So, yeah, there are reflections on biography. But the way I've tried to structure the book is, like, it's life, it's work, it's these reflections on photography, it's that kneading of the dough thing I was talking about. And then sometimes it's just the documents themselves that um, will speak for something. The one document that absolutely threw me was in the divorce uh, proceedings, Olive uh, was visited at the studio by the stenographer from the law firm that represented Max Dupain and the divorce, because of course it's not the no-fault divorce era. You had to prove adultery or desertion, and in their case they were going on the basis of Olive's desertion. And so the case was to do with the restitution of conjugal rights to Max Dupain. So the stenographer turns up with two things. One is one pound, and the other is the address of Max Dupain's parents, so that there is no financial impediment for Olive to take the bus back to where Max is, and no confusion about the address because he was staying there with his parents. So that meant there could be nothing that would stop her going home to him and restoring the conjugal rights. So she takes the pound, she uh, does sign the papers, but needless to say, she doesn't follow through, and then, of course, they're able to proceed to the, on the next stage of the divorce proceedings. Look, I think it is now for you to read the book. Don't just buy one copy. <laughs> it's, look, we've got too much stuff. We need, we need great writing. We need great stories. And the story of a, of a really, truly a great artist. Um, Helen you. Ennis, you've done the most extraordinary job. Just writing the other biography, have you painted the room a different colour? Oh, I'm thinking about that. That's oh! <laughs> No, I read. <laughs> I don't know. I won't be read. I don't know what it will be yet, but it will be a different colour. And it, look, um, I really do congratulate Helen Ennis on a beautiful, um, beautiful book. And 
Um, it's so lovely that Olive's family are here tonight and uh, please go out and enjoy this, buy many copies, get them signed, talk to Helen. But thank you so much for coming tonight in celebration of this great work and great writer. Thank you. I'm really pleased to say that the conversation's not over um, because we've had a wonderful conversation here but it can continue upstairs uh, over refreshments. Alex, you've said it and I think everybody in the room will say you have to buy the book and just as well that you can buy it for a 10% discount in the bookshop tonight and get Helen to sign it. So it's a bit like the pound. There's no excuse for not buying that book tonight. Um, look, we feel here at the library that our collections come alive when the words they contain are read and when the images and objects they include are poured over, explored, wondered at, and perhaps also given that sense of space that you've obviously tried to work with, um, Helen. We're really privileged to be the custodians of Olive's images, three oral histories in which I'm sure she gives away very, very little, and a small collection of personal papers. Um, we're really delighted, though, that over a long period of Helen's life, um, these collections have inspired Helen along with the work and have contributed to this wonderful biography. And um, as the National Library, we'd also like to say congratulations, uh, congratulations and to Fourth Estate for a really, really beautiful book. Um, that's enough for now. Please do come upstairs and join us.